0: Thank you team. And it is a a glorious prospect to think that someday we will stand face to face in front of him who died and rose again. The one who died for us, who rose for us, and that we are here today to worship and to orient our hearts back onto for our good and for his glory. Well, we have reached an end for sure. It's not the end of our lives yet, where we stand before Christ, but we do come back to face him again in this text of Scripture at the end of the book of Romans. It's a bittersweet day. Um, I love to read books. Um, I am a Kindle subscriber, and every day it tells me that I beat my record of the day before by continuing to read every day, which is kind of fun. I, I love some records that I can beat, That's one of them, perhaps, because I love to read. But one thing that I don't like as much is when I get to the end of a really good novel, and I have to say goodbye to characters that I've invested in so deeply. When you get to the end of a good book, whether it's a novel or a biography, whatever it might be, you you begin to feel like you've gotten to know those people, you've been rooting for the heroes, You've been rallying behind them for the overthrow of their their enemies, the villains. And when you have to say goodbye, it's really like saying goodbye to a family member almost. So when we get to the end of Romans, it does feel a bit like that to me. You know, and we could almost say that Paul already has brought this to a good conclusion a couple of chapters ago. But this is kind of like a Lord of the Rings conclusion. Once you see the enemy overthrown, then you have the reunion in Rivendell, and then you have the reunion back in Hobbiton, and then you have the farewell at the Grey Havens. So it's it's like over and over again we get a glimpse of the things that continue to go on as the gospel that he proclaimed very strongly in chapters one to eleven, and then applied in chapters twelve through about the middle of chapter fifteen. It reverberates as it continues to go out across the world. But then here in chapter 16 we're introduced to another cast of characters in this story that we get to just glimpse as we say goodbye. And there's a reason for it. As Paul wraps up his theme overall in the whole book of Romans of the righteous God who righteouses, if you could say that, unrighteous people Based solely on the work of Jesus Christ He shows how it applies in the lives of people that he's met along the way And as we come to this today, the title for our theme as well as this sermon is final words to a faithful church and We have to admit some of the things that we read in chapter 16 are easy to just gloss over and to skim past in order to get to, perhaps, the good stuff towards the very end. But I believe that the things that Paul addresses through his greetings to the people in the Roman Church are a benefit, not only for people in the first century, but for every century and every generation of the local church. There are lessons to be learned here in the the names that we will mine out today. And God, the Holy Spirit, has preserved them in here For our good, so that we can learn what a faithful church looks like, and so that we can, by examples that we see here, follow in their pattern, so that these final words can be applicable to us as we seek by God's help to be a faithful church together. So let's get into the main lesson today, and we're going to see four points. We're going to see that a faithful church, as Paul addresses it, nurtures Christ-centered relationships, doctrinal purity, teamwork, leadership, and gospel-centered lives. So let me pray and then we'll get into reading the first few verses. What I'm going to do this morning is read this whole chapter bit by bit through these points and do my best to pronounce these names. The beauty of it is, I'll do my best and I'll take a stab at it and you you won't even know if I'm messing it up. It's going to be that good. That's where we are in the 21st century here in the Southeast. So we're going to do our best, but let's ask God to help us in that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of the worship that we have inherited through generations of Christians who have faithfully passed down the message of the gospel. And we rejoice that we can be in the gospel together. And so I pray that you would help me as I preach from this beautiful passage in Romans, and that we would all together apply it and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works within us to do and to will of your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, look at Romans 16, if you would, and let me begin reading in verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So I hope that you did walk in the door and greet one another with a holy kiss this morning. That's about the only comment I'm going to give on that, other than to say that we do have some missionaries who come here... From South America, who have an urge when they see you, when they visit, to give you a kiss. Because it's customary still in South American churches to kiss one another on the cheeks as you come in. Uh, I prefer more of the Asian coolness from where I ministered at once, and the kisses I could do without unless it's coming from my wife, and otherwise, you may feel the same. It's interesting. I said much more than I planned to say about that, so let me move on. At first glance, it doesn't seem like there's really anything that binds verses 1 to 16 together. But here's what we find out. There is a predominant phrase, in addition to greet, that's a word that you see over and over again. So obviously there's a greeting going on. But there's another element in this text that binds these things together in a unique way. And I want to highlight that first. If you look with me just briefly, verse 2, we see the phrase, Welcome her in the Lord. Verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse five. First convert to Christ. Verse seven, they were in Christ before me. Verse eight, my beloved in the Lord. Verse nine, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, approved in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. And verse 14, greet those workers in the Lord. Now I realize you didn't have time to mark all this down. That wasn't my intent. What you can do sometimes is as you study God's word, mark every reference to Christ. That's something I learned in inductive Bible study. And over the years, it helps certain things to emerge as you read the text of scripture. And as it did this time, I realized that Paul is not just using Christianese and phrases that are are holy things to say. He's making a point. It goes back to a discussion that I had several years ago with Derek Grizz, who was one of the former pastors here, who now pastors Emmanuel, along with Jared Raby. We were talking about a trend that we saw in the church at that time, where everything was all about discipleship. All of a sudden, it seemed like that had emerged and became the buzzword that everybody was using. And Derek, you know, often intellectually, reminds me of the Apostle Paul at times. You know, he's like, you know, the predominant word in the New Testament is not disciple for a follower of Christ. It's actually in Christ. And so, you know, you might think, well, what's the difference? I mean, here, here's the unique thing. Never before in the history of God followers do you have a savior who has come to this earth to die to reconcile all kinds of people who could have nothing to do with each other and who are enemies enemies to God and enemies with one another. And all of a sudden, he is the uniting force that could never have ever been in any other context unless he had come. And since he came, anyone on the other side of Christ who has believed on him now is in Christ. And the joy of this text is that the world, although it tries to bring people together on the basis of forced agendas, whether that be corrupt governments, whether that be those who try to force political unity and push people out who disagree, or even people in a democratic society who who try to pressure on social issues and push everybody out, what we find is all throughout the world, wherever those pressured unities exist, there is true unity in Christ. And it's beautiful because the only place in the world where you can really be unified, the only place where you can bring people from such varying backgrounds that would have otherwise nothing to do with each other, is the local church. And if there's one thing you can gain from these 16 verses initially, it is that it's only in Christ that men and women can come together, that slaves and rich people can come together, that Jews and Gentiles or any people from former religious persuasions who had such strong convictions against each other can finally come together. It is all in the person of Jesus Christ. That is where true unity, and the only place that unity exists, and it is beautiful. As you read this text, you see people who are united in Christ, and that does not push them out of the equation. That draws the best of them out, as the Lord loves them, and as the Lord connects them to other people. So let's look at some of them now. Phoebe is the first one mentioned. She's actually not a person who is in the Roman church. She's actually from Corinth. And she comes from syncrae It is a port town in Corinth. And she's a lady who's gotten to know Paul and the other believers there. And we learned three things about her. Paul says she's our sister. He says that she is a servant and that she is a patron of many. The three things mentioned there in these verses. What we believe is that she is the one who carried this letter of the Romans, or letter to the Romans, to the church. And as the believers there received it, they also tried to figure out who this woman Phoebe is. See, the way that letters worked at that time if you delivered it through somebody other than you, being the author, you had to give some credit to that person so that the recipients would know that the person is legitimate. They would want to know something about her. So Paul describes that she is our sister. She is a believer. She's a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think it's amazing that she, in this example, raises the bar of importance of women in the local church. You know, some people accuse Paul of being a misogynist, or not loving women by putting them down. But nothing could be further from the truth. Of the 27-some names that he mentions here, about nine of them are women. And in each case, he describes how hard they worked in the Lord, how they were his teammates, and in this case, how he gave to Phoebe the charge of carrying this very important letter that not only has shaped that first century, but us even now. So, it also says that that Phoebe was a servant. Um, Some of you may have the ESV. There's a footnote there that says, servant, uh, maybe deaconess. Why does it say that in the footnote? Because this word servant is actually the typical word that is used for servant, diakonos. And it's from that word diakonos that we get our word for deacon. But there. It's not deaconess in the translation, and the reason the ESV has gone with servant is because they're making a decision based on how that word is used in this context. But I will tell you, there is some debate among faithful Christians as to whether Phoebe was a deaconess at her church, or whether she just served in capacity that was like a deaconess, but not in that official capacity. Why is that an issue? Well, there is debate back and forth about the extent of what women can do in the local church. And it's not my job today to clear that up. All right, I'm going to tell you that among all the commentaries I have, that there are people who land on this verse as definitive that the office for female deacons should exist. And there are others who say, no, it's just not clear. There are some that I read that I would have expected to be against female deacons that were pro-female deacons, and there were some that I would have expected to be totally pro-female deacon that were not, and said that this is actually not clear. So at best, what I can say is, I'm with the translators of the ESV this morning by leaving it as servant. Now, that is not derogatory. This is what we all are to be. And here's the reality of it. There are certain things that women can do in the local churches that men ought never to try. There are certain things that women are equipped by God to do, by how God has created them and designed them, that make them excellent partners for men in ministry, especially as it regards to mercy, caring, compassion, organization, things that happen to help make things better for other people. And that's how she's described by using this word, patron. She's a wealthy person, and Paul is giving her credit as a woman who has enabled him to continue working in ministry by supporting him. And he says that she has been that way to many people. So he tells the Roman church to accept her and to help her along her way in whatever way she needs. That's Phoebe. The next group is two people, Prisca and Aquila. They are identified as fellow workers with Paul and elsewhere you might know them as Priscilla and Aquila. This is obviously a nickname that he is using. It's interesting that he puts Priscilla's name first in the couple name. That could be because she was the more predominant personality, could be because she became a Christian first and then Aquila later. But here's what I see in the book of Acts where we're introduced to them. They always work together, right? Paul finds them as tent makers and he hooks up with them and they become great friends and teammates to him. Later on, they find my main guy, Apollos. There's some characters in the Bible I just gravitate towards. I love Apollos. He was a a powerful evangelist. Maybe he even wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know. I don't know. I can't claim that. That's not an authoritative statement. Um, But here's what he did. He was preaching, but he just didn't know about Jesus yet and the fulfillment of the promise of his death and resurrection. So Priscilla and Aquila took him into their home, and they said... Apollos, we see such potential in what God is doing in and through you, but you need to know the rest of the story. And so both of them, husband and wife, tag-teamed in discipling this guy, Apollos. And that empowered him for very fruitful ministry. So we see that Paul obviously got in trouble one time and said that they risked their necks to save him. We don't know what that is, but they did. And I can imagine in that context in the church, the stories that they would tell, You see that Priscilla and Aquila didn't meet Paul in Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. He met them in Ephesus when they, as Jews, were kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius. And then later on, when he died, they were able to go back. We look at these people who had normal jobs, but they loved Jesus and they just traveled around and sometimes the trouble made them move. But in the trouble, they got to know one another. You see, sometimes in the hardest times, when you're feeling the most uncomfortable, God might forge some of the deepest relationships you ever have, and you'll carry those with you throughout the rest of your life. Let's talk about some other women. The women, we've already mentioned Phoebe and Prisca, but other women mentioned in these verses are Mary, Junia, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus's mom, Julia, and Nereus's sister. Now, what stands out in this list I think I misspelled triphana. I think it should have a H after the P. Let's see. I think so. I can't find it. It's Too many names. But this is what we see. Paul views these women as partners in the gospel, and particularly, he notes their hard work. He says, Mary has worked hard for you. Junia is mentioned with Andronicus, who we believe is her husband, Junia being the woman, Andronicus the man. Paul calls them his kinsmen. He said that they were in prison with him and that they were in Christ before him. could be that they were known by the apostles in the very first church in Jerusalem, and they have since then moved on to Rome. And as he thinks back on them, he thinks back on how this woman and her husband were powerful missionaries as they moved throughout this persecuted church and as he got to see them work. Um, We also see that Tryphana and Tryphosa, they are likely twins. Their names, when you translate them, are delicate and dainty. But the word that Paul uses for them when he says they worked hard, it means that they were really like pack horses. They were labor-intensive ladies. Dainty as they were, by their namesake, they got a lot done for the Lord. Now, how would it be for you to have the Apostle Paul call you out? Because you had stood out to him as loving Jesus and serving the church. But you worked so hard that he noted that, and he wanted to encourage you in that. You know, there are some people that I see around the church, and I note them because of their love for other people and their work as they apply themselves to loving God and loving those other people. They just kind of stand out. Maybe it's the 80-20 rule, 80% of the work done by 20% of the people. It just tends to happen that way. It doesn't have to, though, because what I learned from this is that these are people of ordinary means. Some of these women that I've just mentioned, such as Julia, was a slave. And she was in one of these churches that met around Rome, but she applied herself to the work of the gospel, sharing it with others, meeting practical needs, And these people stood out, and they were encouraged. How encouraged would you be if an apostle would call you out and say, well done, your work for the Lord is outstanding. It would be encouraging, and it would be inspirational for others to follow in that wake. We see other things. The slaves were in this church. Ampliatus, verse 8, beloved of Paul. Urbanus, 9, Paul's fellow worker. Hermes, verse 14, Hermas. The man and the female version of the same name slaves slave names Philologus was a slave and julia all of these were household slaves and they were organized some of them in churches like verse 15 for example philologus julia they were slaves nereus and his sister and olympus and all the saints with them are not listed as slaves So in the same churches, you would have slaves and freemen. You would be working together for the cause of the gospel. Again, what would bring those people together? It's Christ. The households, this is interesting to note. Verse 10 lists the family of Aristobulus, and verse 11, the family of Narcissus. You know that Paul is not greeting Aristobulus. He's not greeting Narcissus, and that's because these two men were unbelievers. They were well-known in the community, and their wives and children had become followers of Jesus, but they had not. This is another thing that struck me in the text. How would it be for a follower of Jesus who is close to Jesus and an amazing teacher to call out the believers, but not list your name? To call out your very family members, but your name's not included. I just have to say, if you're here today and your family members come to church, and maybe you're, you're with them here, or maybe even if you come regularly, and you know that there is something true in the, the following and in the lives of your family members. They truly do seem to know Jesus, but maybe you do not. This could be a day, even in a list of names, where God might call you to follow him yourself, to leave behind, like in Aristobulus's case, the wealth of the world, or Narcissus's case, the status that came from being connected to a family of means. Maybe that is hindering you, but you need to be broken to be included in the best family of all. We also have Rufus and his mom. It's interesting Paul says that Rufus is chosen in the Lord. He is likely the son of Simon of Cyrene. Simon was the man who was peeled off of the crowds on the day of Jesus' crucifixion and chosen to carry Jesus's cross to Golgotha. And what we see here is that Rufus, one of the sons, as well as his mom, the wife of Simon, have come to know Jesus as well. And we presume Simon himself and another brother, who we see listed in the Gospel of Mark, are all related to this family. And what a unique honor it would have been for Rufus to have a dad who carried the very cross of Christ and for the legacy that you would carry down through your life, knowing that you should have been there carrying that, but that Jesus bore that for you. And Paul, talking the way he does about Rufus's mom, that she was a mom to him as well, just tells me that that's how it is in the local church, Back when I was considering whether it would be safe or not to leave the United States where I had family connections and to go to China to minister there for who knew how long, one of the verses that captured my heart was when Jesus said, whoever comes to me and follows me and basically says no or leaves behind, forsakes mother and father and lands. Well, for my sake, follow me and gain father and mother and sister and brother and lands, and it would be like a 100% increase based on what you leave behind. You cannot, you cannot abandon something for the sake of Jesus and, and get a bad return. Jesus always pays in ways that you never expect. And think about how many mothers Paul had. I think Rufus's mom was Paul's biological mom. It's not what he's saying. He was mothered by this lady though and this is how it is in the church if you leave a natural family in order to follow jesus and to be faithful to him he will provide family for you and here's the point today the application from all this just a couple of things to think about relationships are key to spiritual life we can't live life in christ alone Paul was arguably the smartest man in the New Testament. And you might think of him as an intellect that was hard to relate to. Like if you had a chance to spend a dinner with the Apostle Paul, that you would be intimidated and not able to speak. He loved people and he related to them and he actually preferred being around them and surrounding himself with people that he could share life with. Because he knew something, he couldn't do it by himself. He needed the work of Christ through other people in his own life. And relationships take work. Are you leaning in? Are you getting to know one another here? Sometimes I think the only person in here is Al Cage because he responds. But that's just one context, okay? When you're leaving here, when you're milling around talking, you know, I know we're a quiet bunch from time to time when it comes to here, but do you engage personally? Would you know the names of people would you know 27 names of people here in this room this morning? That takes work. Are you leaning in, wanting to know who people are, praying for one another, with one another, working together for your mutual joy in the glory of Jesus? There's an application for you. Learn 27 names. Maybe this fall. Work on it. Get to know people. Get to know something about them. Faithful words continue. And I won't spend as much time on these other points, don't worry, even though I'm getting to a point about doctrinal purity. I, I have a button on my desk given to me by some friends, by Cindy Reynolds, to be precise, that when you press it, it says, heresy. Because she knows that I am particular about what I hear. And if I hear something that's heresy, just like some people have their no buttons, I'm going to press my heresy button because I care about the church. You know, it's kind of a mystery. Why does Paul switch, let's read verses 17 to 20, into this talk about doctrinal purity. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, he's keeping that family connection, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be as, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, we don't really know what dangers Paul saw coming down the pike. We know that in Ephesus when he worked with people like Prisca and Aquila, there were false teachers like dangerous wolves in sheep's clothing that would come in to the midst trying to destroy and disrupt the flock. We do know that they were going to, Paul says, cause divisions. So there's people who come in and they see the family relationships and they just start to turn people against each other. Their words just subtly tell you you know, negative things about other people. And their point seems to be just to split the church apart. And there are other people who come with deceptions, verse 18. They, they just have completely wrong, heretical... Heretical is, is a word that just means off. It is not on the mark of truth. It is against the truth that's been revealed. And so Paul says you're gonna have people that come in, and they're just very flattering with their speech, And they're just going to try to deceive you, just flat out tell you lies that do not line up with the truth. Two things we're commanded to do as a church, we're commanded to watch out for them. Another word is you mark them. I just think of, you make a list, right? That guy's a false teacher. That woman's a false teacher. And you make a list in some ways and you just say, we're going to mark them in a particular way so that they stand out and we're going to watch out for them. Unless they repent, we're not going to listen to what they say and that you avoid them you avoid them as you go out of of your way to not get entangled with them Um, how are we to do this well paul commands the church to be as wise as to what is good to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil verse 19. i always forget where i've shared this illustration and so if i have with many of you i apologize but It reminds me of something. That verse makes me think back to when my dad and I would clean institutional banks, financial banks, in the evenings after closing time. Dad got that job outside of his nine-to-five job working for the power company in order to put my sister and then me through college. I'd help him out and we'd work two to three nights a week vacuuming, cleaning the offices and the teller's work areas and sometimes finding unique things. Like the night Dad was emptying a trash can under a teller's desk and found hundreds of dollars that had just been thrown away. Thinking one of the tellers had made a big mistake, and being a man of integrity, my dad called the bank manager and explained what he'd found. The manager, I'm sure, laughed a bit, for the bills were counterfeits that had been used that day in an exercise to train the bank tellers to spot the differences between genuine and fakes. Um, They weren't supposed to throw them away like that, and the teller would be kind of reminded of that the next time the manager saw her, apparently. After Dad looked more closely at the money, and upon hearing from the bank manager the difference between a true $100 bill and a counterfeit, Dad grew wiser in spotting the real thing. He found out that the banks um, had trained these tellers not to start with the fakes but to start with the real deal and look at what the real money looks like. Perhaps you know this if you've worked with money and you just kind of get a sense of what a real bill feels like, maybe even smells like, what it looks like when it's under light. There are certain things that you can tell about what is real. And I think this is a way of being wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, The way we expose those who preach to serve themselves and who preach contrary to what we have received is to focus more on what we have received in the gospel than on really what the false teaching is all about. If we are focusing on growing to understand what we have received from God, who God is, and focusing on serving one another and focusing on working out the details of our beliefs together in real time, we're not going to have a lot of time to be duped and taken in. And you may just get a sense of when somebody is trying to divide you or deceive you, that something just isn't right. You may not know everything about what they're trying to do, or everything about what they're saying, but you have a sense, because you've been exposed to the real thing, that what they're doing and what they're talking about isn't the real thing. Paul says, That someday, the promise for us is that the God of peace, I love that description of God, but look at what the God of peace will do. He will crush Satan under our feet. This is a promise that goes back to Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel, as the woman who had been tempted and fell was then promised by God that her child someday, the seed of the woman, would get into this locked conflict with the snake, that the snake would bruise her son's heel, but that he would crush the serpent's head. This is what the promise of the Bible has been from the very beginning. And it might see that it's slow in coming. But here's what we see. Every time a person comes away from false teaching and into the church, every time they're delivered to the true gospel, Satan gets another blow to his head. Every time that that happens is a precursor for the end time when Jesus will finally put his head, Satan's head, under his foot and he will be forever cast into the lake of fire. The grace of this is that we, as God's people, are on the victory side. And I would encourage you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And wait for that day. Another thing that's encouraging to me is in these in these faithful words is a glimpse at teamwork leadership. Look briefly at verses twenty-one to twenty-three. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. It's an interesting verse. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortes greet you. You've got Timothy, Paul's protege, his fellow worker. Lucius, Jason, and Sosa Potter, Paul's kinsmen, his, his fellow Jews who had turned to Christ. Tertius is interesting. His name means third, indicating either very unimaginative or very tired parents. He's the one who has been the scribe for this letter, and it would have been his handwriting that the believers would have read when Phoebe delivered the letter. Gaius is Paul's host and the host of the whole church in Corinth. He must have been a very wealthy man. Erastus is an important political leader turned to Christ. And Cordus, likely another wealthy believer who supported Paul. Now, what to say about these verses, and why did I put it into teamwork leadership? Because I think it, it shows the Christ-likeness of Paul as a leader, To include other people and to show us through examples even in how he describes like prisca and aquila his fellow workers not his subordinates not his staff but his fellow workers you see there's life giving truth and love for the church when leaders work together and with humility seek to lift one another up, to become the best that God intends them to be. You know, I think Paul, you know, could have looked at Tertius and Tertius like, Paul, can I say hi too? Like, Tertius, come on now. This is my letter. No, but instead, not only does he say, okay, Tertius, let's say Tertius says hi too. Tertius, why don't you write it in your own handwriting and say hi from your own perspective? You know, this is the Holy Spirit at work, revealing something important, not just a little guy peeking up over the wall and saying, I was here too. Now this is something that Paul initiated so that we could see his MO when it comes to working with others. Paul, although he was the apostle to the Gentiles, did not assert his authority in such a way that pushed people down. When it came to men and women working together for the sake of the gospel, He called them his teammates, and where he could affirm and lift them up, he did so as far as he possibly could in order that they could grow as leaders themselves. That's something for us who are leaders here to think on. And finally, there is the gospel-centered living. The last verses say this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In these final verses, Paul comes back to the themes that he has emphasized throughout this whole letter, Starting back in chapter 1, we see gospel in verse 25, the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 25, and 26, the eternal God who brought about the obedience of faith. That phrase, the obedience of faith, is what Paul set out to explain and what I preached when I preached the first sermon in this series over 10 months ago. We're back to it again. And finally, Glory to God through Jesus Christ at the end of this text. You see, a church that is faithful is a church that becomes ever-increasingly gospel-centered. that's a hyphenated phrase that is thrown around a lot. What does it mean? I have found help from Michael Kruger, who is a Bible teacher and a seminary professor. This is what he says. Gospel-centered means... To be focused first and primarily on the sufficiency and greatness of what God has already done, and then let our good works flow out as a response. Right, that's a good definition, and I want to describe how that contrasts with a works centered person. A work centered person is focused first and primarily on what they have to do. And the finished work of Christ is often an afterthought. I've got to ask you, are you focusing on the Christ of the gospel or are you focusing on your own work? The differences are, are polarizing. It's the difference of a watershed that goes one direction or another. Christ is at the peak. When you encounter Christ, what will you do with him? Do you see him as already having done all the work for you, for your salvation? If so, then you go down that side of gospel-centeredness, where God, the great God, who has sovereignly worked all these details out and shown his great love for me in Jesus Christ, has done all the work, and I come to him in faith, believing. Or if you encounter Jesus and perhaps think, there's something that I I have to do still. There's something that no certainly that's good that Jesus died, but there's just something that I I feel like I need to do. There has to be something worthy in me. And I want to bring something. That, That just doesn't seem right to just believe. To repent and believe. Friends, if If that's where you are, then you are on the side this morning of a work-centered person. And your work is attempting to reconcile all these demands of God by what you do. But it's impossible for you to do that. This morning, I want to bring this to a close by asking you, have you been transformed throughout this series Romans by the view of this great and loving God if not I close by saying that you can today come to God you can ask him for a new heart and the promise that he gives is that he will give you that heart that will rest from your work And trust in this God, who through Christ has done the work for you that you could never do. And even if you could, it would never be enough. Jesus has done it in your place. And I have to say, I or another of the team can help you if you want to talk about that today. And I think you can take confidence that here we know Christ. And our relationships are Christ-centered. We have spiritual protection here, seeking to protect you from what is evil and will bring division and deception. We have leaders who are growing in humility and desiring to work together for your good and with you for God's glory, all to the glory of God. Daniel, if you'd come, I'm going to end with a prayer, and then we're going to sing as we close, He Will Hold Me Fast. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you for this text of Scripture. We love you. We ask you to work in us that which is well-pleasing to you. And I pray that you would strengthen the relationships here at West Park to be honoring to you, to be encouraging to others around here, and that we would have confidence that we're surrounded by people who know and love Jesus, and can walk with us through the most difficult parts of life and help us to be those kind of people, those kind of Christ followers. And Lord, I just thank you now for the confidence we have and we can believe it's true that Jesus has died, that he has risen, and that he will hold us fast. In Jesus' name.